Today on the ESG Beat, I'd like to welcome Lori Heinel. Lori is the Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer for State Street Global Advisors, the second largest asset manager in the world. Lori has several decades of experience in the asset management business, and in this episode of the ESG Beat, we will discuss how the asset manager's view of corporate culture has evolved. We will also discuss the crossroads at which corporate culture stands today. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Lori. Thank you so much, Amelia, for having me. It's so great that you're sponsoring this initiative, especially at this moment in time. So I look forward to the conversation. As do I. I I always enjoy um, hearing from you. And this ESG Beat will focus on why State Street decided to make corporate culture a chief engagement priority back in 2019 and how its engagement with companies has evolved. But given that we are, of course, recording this amidst the global pandemic, I wanted to focus uh, specifically on the relationship between culture and risk oversight and resilience. But before we get started, let's start with some definitions. Culture can be so amorphous. So how do, how do you and how does State Street define culture? Uh, sure. So I think, as you know, culture has a lot of different dimensions to it. So we've not necessarily tried to define culture in our own terms, but rather we would ascribe to the view that culture is really about that set of shared values, attitudes, beliefs, practices, expectations, et cetera, which really drive how actors within the corporate arena behave, how they prioritize, and ultimately what they measure and manage. So can you articulate the difference between culture and purpose or perhaps the uh, relationship between culture and purpose? I think purpose for us tends to be sort of a higher order, why are we here kind of a notion. So in our vernacular, we would say that part of our corporate uh, purpose or mission is to invest responsibly to enable economic prosperity and social progress, right? So that's an ambition, if you will. Culture are, as I said, a a series of the behaviors and attitudes and underlying shared practices and norms that help the organization align together and work towards the achievement of that mission or that ambition. One thing that I've been incredibly impressed with with respect to State Street's work on culture is how data intensive it is. So (laughs) this isn't, you know, culture, as I said, can be amorphous and um, aspirational, but can you give us a sense of how data is not the end all and be all, but um, it's one way to measure various attributes to to see if you are on track, so to speak. So it's great to have an ambition. It's great to say that everybody's acting in a certain way, but without some sort of markers that one can agree on uh, amongst the group that are gonna be important, it's really hard to know or to demonstrate either internally or externally that you're actually aligned against those behaviors. So there are a variety of things that we measure as you rightly note. First and foremost, we're investors. So every day we've got a scorecard which uh, indicates how well we're doing from an investment performance or an investment outcome standpoint for our investors. But we also have a variety of other dimensions. Uh, Certainly we're risk managers. Uh, Again, that ties very much to the investment purpose, but also ties 
to the business, the systemic risk. We work in an uh, industry, financial services, which is systemically important. And so how we're thinking about risk as a broader actor on that global stage is something that we also measure and monitor. So in, in our way of thinking about it, you want to have some markers, and I won't call them statistics or metrics, but they're markers because some of them can be qualitative to some degree. Uh, things like attitudes. You know, we do employee surveys, for example, and that's uh, those are numbers, but it's hardly quantitative in the sense of deriving an actual uh, you know metric or an actual score. But it gives you information, and that information you can use to assess how you're tracking towards the, the goals that you actually set for yourself. Given your experience in the asset management industry, I'd like to get a bit of a historical perspective. I imagine that culture has always been important, but it seems to be much more important today. And can you shed some light as to why? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think it's going to be even more important than it was coming into this pandemic. Uh, yeah. And and just again, a, a few um, reasons why that seems to be the case. I think first and foremost, those companies that um, you know were thoughtful about how to keep their workforces engaged, we're already seeing that they're getting some benefits from that. Um, you know, certainly some companies had to take very difficult decisions and furlough employees and things of that nature. But there again, those companies that did it in a way that um, supported their, their employees, i.e. maybe some of them had uh, continued health benefits, for example, I think they'll, they'll win back the, um, the respect of those employees, even if they did have to go through a hard time because they will have felt that they were treated humanely. I think the whole work from home thing, it's gonna create a different kind of a compact between employers and employees. You know, at State Street, for example, we've had a very flexible work environment for you know, many, many years, since long before I joined there. And yet the number of employees who took advantage of it was relatively small. And in part, that was because employees were a little reluctant because perhaps they felt as though it would um, put them on the margin. And also, I think in some cases, managers were a little reluctant because they weren't sure they could assess how the employee was doing. Well, now all of a sudden, we've all been working from home, so, and we've done it quite successfully. So I think that um, you know how the work gets done is going to shift a little bit. So maybe more in the uh, spirit of work-life balance and, and enabling employees to um, to do the work, but do do it in a way that works better for them. So I think there'll be a lot of things around human capital that we'll be watching over the coming months and years that are going to be shaped by this crisis. And um, I couldn't agree with you more. Is that why it's become a focus for asset managers? Because stakeholder um, expectations have changed with respect to corporate culture. And so is it how does that relate to culture being tied to uh, value or investment risk? So from our vantage point, they all tie together through the lens of what is being measured and what is being modeled is ultimately um, what gets addressed and what gets focused on. And what we found in our own research is that companies that have uh, stronger cultures in terms of risk awareness, um, you know, social practices, uh, treating their human capital as their most valuable asset, the companies that demonstrate those kinds of attributes 
do tend to, in the aggregate, have better long-term uh, shareholder returns. So there is definitely a linkage between how companies behave, if you will, their culture, and ultimately their sustainability and their long-term financial prospects. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, in your career, the move from tangible to intangible assets? I've heard that framing often, um, um, and could you shed some light, um, and if you could tie that back to why culture is important um, to asset managers today in a way that it wasn't um, several years ago? Sure. So first of all, just from a, um, a broad definitional standpoint, tangible assets are physical assets. So think, think things like plants and equipment. So if you're a steel manufacturer or an automobile manufacturer, for example, you have a lot of physical assets. You've got you know, plants, uh, you've got assembly line components, you've got raw materials, etc. Intangibles are things that aren't uh, as, as um, physical. So they might be things like patents or licenses. So think about in pharmaceutical companies, a patent is an asset, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have a physical uh, attribute to it. You might say, well, the drug that, it, uh, that, that, that it's a patent on is in some sense the physical asset. But the idea is that there's actually value on the balance sheet that is related to this intangible thing called the patent. And as time has gone by, and as we've had more uh, knowledge-based industries like technology and other industries become much more prominent, they often don't have the same degree of physical assets. In fact, many of them have very few physical assets. They might have a couple of key employees with a certain amount of intellectual capital, a couple of computers, and off they go. They become a digital property or, or in effect, a digital asset. So uh, what happened a, a, really about a decade ago or so is if you looked at the aggregate level of assets on balance sheets of companies in the S&P 500, just as a proxy, and just as a diversion, this is true in other markets, including places like the United Kingdom as well, you actually saw that the intangible assets were larger as a percentage of total assets uh, versus the tangible, the kind of classic bricks and mortar types of assets. So basically, the, the, cre the challenge that that creates for asset managers is that there, there are um, usually strong accounting or regulatory guidelines around how you treat and value those assets. So think about receivables, for example, which your students may be familiar with. There are rules about how you can treat a receivable in terms of um, its uh, realization and how, how you account for it, if you will. But there are lots of things that become a lot more nebulous or where the um, decision-making requires more judgment. And so if you think about what is the value of a brand, for example, so you think about mergers and acquisitions, you buy a company, oftentimes there'll be goodwill that's placed during that acquisition, and that's related to the brand. Well, how you value that brand can be, um, you, know, you can use a variety of scenarios and arrive at different conclusions. So very long-winded way of answering your, your question, but the spirit of it is that when you have management teams that act conservatively, or uh, take risk more seriously, or do think about the longer term versus the shorter term differently and, and strike that balance in a way that's friendly to stakeholders, 
they will tend to make judgments about some of the things that they can make choices around as it relates to those intangible assets in a way that's more transparent, that's more predictable, uh, that's uh, more aligned with longer term value creation. That uh, brings us to human capital management and, and how important it is and how it's evolved as, you know, uh, given that intangible assets are so important and make up so much of the value of the company, um, human capital management becomes even more important. But before we get to human capital management, I wanted to turn to the role of the board in overseeing corporate culture. Um, in 2019, State Street was uh, very clear and explicit um, about the fact that few directors can clearly articulate or demonstrate how they um, oversee corporate culture. Um, can you walk us through at a high level the board's role? And then if you could point out why should it be the board? Um, why should the board be involved in that level of detail with respect to corporate culture? So that's a great question. And first I would say that ultimately the culture is the employees and the managers and the leaders of that organization. So ultimately the um, driving of that culture and the sustainability does rest with those actors, if you will. But the board does have a critically important role to play. And the way that we've um, engaged with boards is that their job is to really to oversee everything related to the corporation, to make sure that the practices that they're engaging in make sense in the context of the corporation's long-term strategy, that they um, you know, meet whatever standard of care, that they have looked at risk in a thoughtful way. So it's typically not the job of the board necessarily to second guess or to manage the company, but it is their job to hold the managers, the team leaders, the, the president, the executives, et cetera, accountable for how they are uh, delivering the long-term results of the corporation. So in that spirit, what we've called on boards to do is to understand what their company's culture is. So what are the attributes of that culture and, and how does that get, um, how does that manifest across whether that's um, reward systems or hiring practices, development of employees, uh, businesses that they choose to participate or not participate in. And so we're asking board members to make sure that there's alignment between what the company says its culture is and how that supports or doesn't support the corporate strategy. So think about um, a company that might really value its um, innovation characteristics and strive to um, you know, be a leader in their field, not by being the largest, but by, by being the most innovative. Well, then the question is, are they investing in that innovation? Are they, uh, how, what kinds of employees are they hiring? Are they dedicating the right amount of uh, dollars to research agendas versus to other kinds of things? So it's, it, it's that kind of an oversight that we're encouraging boards to really engage in, to ask the kinds of questions that can demonstrate the linkage between what the corporate strategy is and the culture and make sure that then decisions made by the corporation and by its leaders align uh, those two sides of the coin. That's a very helpful framing. So would you say, just drilling down a bit deeper, would you say that the board's role is to ask the right questions and elicit the right information? Um, and of course, not to micromanage the day-to-day, -day, right. but to be assured that um, the culture is being operationalized at the management level. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, and to challenge too, right? So if the kinds of uh, responses that they get 
seem inconsistent than challenging why that would be. And what, what we've observed is the most constructive dynamics are when you have strong leadership, but you also have strong board engagement because the two um, entities then really value that constructive debate. Um, and again, it's not for the board to necessarily second guess or micromanage, but it is for them, as you say, to ask the right questions, to uh, probe on the answers that are given in a way that creates, again, the right kind of transparency and alignment, and then to hold the managers accountable for that. Because if they give the right answer, but they ultimately don't follow through, then you also have a problem. So part of the, the role of the board is to oversee the execution at that level, just in terms of did the management actually follow through on the things that they committed to do. With respect to that accountability lever, um, are, are you seeing more focus on executive compensation being tied to these environmental and social metrics? So at this stage, generally speaking, the compensation palette is quite nuanced. So it's not typical to have um, compensation be against one or two or a few attributes. It's really more of a mosaic. I would say there is more and more scrutiny on uh, the longer term results versus shorter term results and allying executive compensation to the generation of the longer term results. And you know, almost by definition, you start to get into the human capital uh, equation through that lens, right? Because a company that has high turnover or disenfranchised employees or employees who um, you know, don't feel as though the company is aligned with their own culture and their own value systems, then you're gonna run into problems. So, it's not so much that we've seen um, you know, explicit metrics around human capital as it's that that becomes, in a sense, a lever by which management teams can drive the long-term results. Now, having said that, um, there has been more scrutiny on certain dimensions of human capital. So um, you'll, your audience may be familiar with our Fearless Girl campaign, which we conducted uh, starting a couple of years ago. And there, uh, what we had identified was that more diverse senior leadership teams, more diverse boards generated better long-term results in the aggregate. And so we took it uh, upon ourselves and, and many other asset managers and asset owners have joined in this as well to say, let's really um, lobby for more diversity in the boardroom and more diversity at senior leadership levels. Again, our vote is in the, in the boardroom where we can actually vote for uh, uh, board slates, et cetera, and really try to drive the diversity slate that way. So there are times when there, there might be something that's so universal, so to speak, in this case, you know, diversity is kind of a universal concept uh, that it does warrant more, uh, more of an active engagement. That was an extraordinary campaign, the Fearless Girl uh, campaign, and it inspired a, a lot of research, uh, including a paper that I wrote called Sex, Power, and Corporate Governance, which uh, um, I'm grateful to you for uh, providing your insights on uh, when I was writing that. But that is a, such a terrific example of active engagement really making a, a, a difference. I'd like to move to cultural risk oversight and relationship between culture and risk oversight. In the past, you've described a portfolio in a way that really resonated with me as someone who's interested in risk. So you said that a portfolio is not a collection of assets, but a collection of exposure. 
Um, so how does that shift in perspective change the way that asset managers should approach environmental and social risks? Now, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and maybe just for the audience, I'll, I'll frame just a bit. The, uh, the, what I meant by that is traditionally, you think about a portfolio as a, as a combination of stocks, bonds, and cash. Uh, within any one of those sleeves, you can be more granular. You can think private equity, public equity, international equity, emerging markets, et cetera, et cetera. So classically, when we construct portfolios, we tend to have sleeves that align with an asset class kind of a marker. And, you know, obviously this is not new research, but, you know, over the last couple of decades, uh, most practitioners have realized that some of those assets move in tandem. So corporate high yield corporate bonds move in tandem with equities, for example, because they have uh, a lot of equity beta, so to speak, in, in their um, constitution. So when I talk about exposures, the conventional uh, translation is into what is the driver of the underlying return from a macroeconomic standpoint. Is it you know growth? Is it income? Is it uh, some degree of protection? But if you take that idea of exposures and start to move it in, in some more granular ways, you can also do a lot of scenario analysis. So you think about, well, how does my portfolio react, react to certain kinds of shocks? So what if China slows more dramatically than we had anticipated? Or what if you know, interest rates, uh, inflation rears its ugly head in a way that we hadn't anticipated? So you can do that. And, and, and ultimately, that gives you a different kind of lens through which to assess the risks of your portfolio, but also the opportunities you might have in that portfolio. Now, ESG, to me, is almost a, in some sense, it's a third dimension of the portfolio problem because, again, historically we've thought of the portfolio problem as being really risk and reward in uh, a return or outcome from, from a financial standpoint. But increasingly, there is a recognition that that portfolio has an outcome from a, a, an environmental or a social or just a broader footprint standpoint. So I think green bonds are the, the case that's probably easiest for your audience to get their heads around. The nature of a green bond is in, in, in financial terms, it looks very much like a typical bond. It's got an income, it's got a maturity, it's got a rating, it's got a price, it's got all those things. But it also has a societal outcome in the sense that oftentimes the proceeds of that bond are being used to do something, uh, you know, to mitigate greenhouse emissions or to uh, provide um, some measure of uh, you know, clean energy to an environment. So um, again, a bit of a long-winded answer, but I think that the, the, the new part of this idea of exposures is this third dimension, i.e. Uh, how do you assess the uh, ESG impact that your investment portfolio might have. And, and that can take all different forms, but the probably the simplest one that a lot of people are trying to look at and measure today is carbon intensity to say, okay, uh, at, in the aggregate, does my portfolio invest in companies or securities of companies that are uh, carbon neutral, that are actually, you know, damaging the environment or that are actually remediating and adapting to the environment. So, those things are starting to become more and more important to investors in part because they do have long-term physical costs as well. And would you say that aligns with your fiduciary duties as an asset manager to sort of look at that 
additional perspective because of the impact that it has on your portfolio because of the exposure, the risk exposure that ESG issues could have. Yeah, absolutely. And what we really stand for in the ESG world is value, not values with an S. And when I say that, what I mean is that ultimately, again, our job as a, an asset manager is to drive the best investment results that we can for our clients. While sometimes there may be other, um, you know, uh, social elements that that client might want to have a view on, and we can, of course, do that. Think, you know, uh, socially res uh, responsible investing or exclusionary investing. We can certainly do that for clients, but our primary uh, reason for being is to deliver the investment outcome. But what we find over time is that those companies that are also good practitioners in an ESG way, an environmental social governance way, tend to also deliver good investment performance. And we've done a lot of research on this, and, and one of the things that we found in our quantitative research is that this ESG factor is another way of looking at the quality of a company. And it's uh, kind of a different kind of a marker for quality than your typical uh, balance sheet leverage, markers that you would see that would be a measure of a quality company. And we think that there is something there about how management um, treats risks, how managers uh, management manages those risks, and ultimately how management avoids uh, the kind of headline risk that goes with major disruptions to their business. Do you think part of that quality comes from the fact that the ESG process uh, requires so much information to flow within the corporate hierarchy and across the company and from and to external and internal stakeholders? Well, we think it's a lot of things. It, it certainly, that's part of it, this, uh, this attention to, again, markers, to use a word, that uh, are indicators of things that are uh, perhaps harder to um, you know, manage and understand in, 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 in abstract terms. So talk about, do I have good employee engagement? Well, you might wanna look at employee surveys, but oftentimes that's just one dimension. You also want to look at things like turnover, or you might want to look at, you know, um, how you're talked about on the, in the media and on the web, right? So there are all manner of things to do. So I think that the, at least our view is that it, there are several things that are at work here. One is that the management is paying attention to those things, and so that is signaling to the broader organization that they matter. So that's one dimension of it. The second, as you say, may be that they've got um, more generalized um, information that they're reviewing in a more systematic way and that that's giving them different indicators that if they hadn't paid attention to those that, they, that wouldn't be there. But it also I think goes back to your earlier uh, question about the alignment between culture and the business strategy. And the more that those things are aligned, our uh, findings are that that ultimately drives better long-term results. So that brings us to the concept of resilience, which we see um, so much lately in the current pandemic. Um, in February of this year, you wrote about the difference between black swans, which swoop in out of nowhere, and you identified a number of gray swans, which are plausible, but, but not sure to happen. And I, I'd like to discuss the current pandemic, which you know some say is a black swan, some say is a, a gray swan. Um, but are companies that focused on corporate culture faring better in your view? Can that link be drawn? I know that it's very early days and 
um, but are there specific examples that you're seeing in your engagement or in your research? So, as you say, I think it is early to to draw firm conclusions on this point because we've only we're only still a couple of months into this uh, pandemic. But what I would say is that we we are observing a lot of different things, you know, both our own research and our own company engagement, but more broadly in the press, right? So, you know, those companies that had disaster recovery or better preparedness plans, period, generally speaking, have had a better, easier time of it, right? So uh, whether that was um, ensuring that they had, um, you know, disaster recovery plans where people knew where they needed to go, or they had the equipment to be able to be effective in their jobs, or they had um, communications mechanisms in place to make sure that they could check on the health and safety of their employees. So, I mean, think of all the different logistical disruptions that have come a, a, along with COVID. And so companies that were generically better prepared for those kinds of disasters, whatever they, you know, even if we hadn't anticipated a pandemic, there are dimensions of this that uh, would have been invoking resiliency um, kinds of protocols anyway. So those companies who were better prepared were better prepared. <laughs> and, we're, and we're seeing that, I think, pretty universally. I think the other thing, though, is that um, this has been a time when employee engagement and the leadership's ability to connect with their employees and not, not be Pollyanna about the scenario, but be fact-based, be rational, uh, be transparent, be honest about what they know and they don't know, uh, be empathetic. Uh, you know, all of those tools that we talk about that are hallmarks of great leaders and great managers, when you see them on display in a company or in a company's communications, it, it, it's palpable. And, and, you, you can, and we can even see in our own company how um, some of the efforts that we've taken as leadership team to communicate, communicate with our, our employees and enable them to serve clients during a very, very difficult period, it's resulted in very positive feedback loops. So uh, again, data point of one, so I don't want to overplay the point, uh, but I think we've seen this in other companies as well. I think the other thing is that you look at um, business practices uh, and you think about something as simple as advertising campaigns and the, um, the sort of decisions that different companies have made in terms of do they continue to advertise? If they do, and what media do they advertise? And what placement do they advertise? Do they reshape their advertising campaign? So again, that's one small corporate decision in the context of a much larger set of um, business activities, but it's an indicator, right, of how that company is thinking about its broader business impact and, and the resiliency of those uh, business decisions and, and the business platforms that they operate on. So, so early days, uh, but my expectation would be that those companies that had, you know, had put the right kind of attention and focus on uh, resiliency will come out of this stronger and better than those companies that had not and are now scrambling uh, to procure the necessary equipment or reassure their employees or assess what the impacts to their long-term business strategy really are. I'm so uh, happy that you identified the examples of um, 
how companies are reaching out to and communicating with their employees and other stakeholders, because if those communication lines were open before the pandemic, I would imagine that those companies have a competitive advantage to leverage those good relationships. Um, so I know that it's early days, but I always like to end the ESG beat by giving our guests magic wands and crystal balls. <laughs> and uh, so let's start with the magic wand. If you could wave your wand and cause companies to change uh, their culture or focus on culture in order to be more resilient, uh, what specific changes would you cause them to make? Look, I, I think there's a lot of discussion now around this term stakeholder and who are stakeholders. And it's a bit of a politicized discussion because oftentimes it uh, seems, it can seem to devalue the importance of shareholders as stakeholders. But from our vantage point, all the stakeholders do matter because if you care for all the stakeholders appropriately, you also take care of your shareholders. So I think if there's one um, thing that I'd like management to think differently about or have managements think universally about is the importance of that stakeholder ecosystem, not to disenfranchise or to the detriment of shareholders, but to realize that good stakeholder, and I'm talking about suppliers, employees, clients, equity stakeholders, the, the entire range, that when you treat them all well, and uh, you know, balance their interests, you will ultimately benefit shareholders as well. But as I say, these days, some of that gets to be a little bit, um, uh, it gets to be a little bit politicized in a way that I think is not healthy. I think you're absolutely right. It's uh, often seen as a binary yes. decision. Yes. Okay, so now for your crystal ball, uh, <laughs> I know that you have a fairly optimistic outlook on how the market will fare overall this year uh, because of pent up consumer demand. I've heard you talk about that on um, uh, various media outlets recently. Uh, what are you seeing uh, with respect to culture and human capital management in your crystal ball? Yeah, look, I think it's gonna be even more important than it was coming into this pandemic. Uh, and, yeah, and, and just again, a, a few um, reasons why that seems to be the case. I think first and foremost, those companies that um, you know, were thoughtful about how to keep their workforces engaged, we're already seeing that they're getting some benefits from that. Um, you know, certainly some companies had to take very difficult decisions and furlough employees and things of that nature. But there again, those companies that did it in a way that um, supported their, their employees, i.e. maybe some of them had uh, continued health benefits, for example, I think they'll, they'll win back the, um, the respect of those employees, even if they did have to go through a hard time because they will have felt that they were treated humanely. I think the whole work from home thing, it's gonna create a different kind of a compact between employers and employees. You know, at State Street, for example, we've had a very flexible work environment for you know, many, many years, since long before I joined there. And yet the number of employees who took advantage of it was relatively small. And in part, that was because employees were a little reluctant because perhaps they felt as though it would um, put them on the margin. 
And also I think in some cases, managers were a little reluctant because they weren't sure they could assess how the employee was doing. Well, now all of a sudden we've all been working from home so, and we've done it quite successfully. So I think that um, you know how the work gets done is gonna shift a little bit. So maybe more in the uh, spirit of work-life balance and, and enabling employees to, um, to do the work, but do, do it in a way that works better for them. So I think there'll be a lot of things around human capital that we'll be watching over the coming months and years that are gonna be shaped by this crisis. Well, I look forward to um, continuing to hear your insights uh, as uh, this goes on. And I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Amelia. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.